following program is pre-recorded. Good morning, glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means we have reached the last radio hour of the week in the Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, Dean Stephen Smith of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale or at hillsdale.edu. And, of course, all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at Hillsdale Dialogues on iTunes in the order in which they were produced. More than 400 of them now. We are moving through Shakespeare's history plays with the help of Dean Smith and Dr. Arn. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Uh, Dr. Uh, Arn, welcome back. Dean Smith, welcome back. You're, you're recovered, I hope. Oh, yes. Uh, COVID is, is gone from our household at last. At last. Banished. Like Richard, well, we won't go there. Yeah. Let's begin <laughs> by setting up where we have been. Dr. Arn and I took a couple of weeks to talk about politics in the here and now. Where were we when we left off, uh, Dean Smith? Well, Henry V had won his war against France. He had wooed Kate, married her, and it looks like a triumphant and happy end for England. But that last chorus points out that Henry would die young and leave Henry VI, his his infant son, as king. And then the uh, play mentions that we've already talked about this story earlier, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, tell us a little bit about the years in which we are watching this. This is this was a long time ago, but they are history plays for a reason. Henry the Sixth actually reigned in the in the fifteenth century. These are real deal people. Oh yes, and um, this first tetralogy, as it's called, was one of Shakespeare's earliest works. And it deals with the Wars of the Roses, and that's the war between uh, the Lancastrians and the Yorkists. And Henry VI um, will be murdered in the first three plays eventually, lose his crown and be murdered. And then Richard III will rise, the tyrant, and he will be defeated by Henry Tudor, Henry VII, who will bring an end to the Wars of the Roses. So if someone wants to read them in order that they occurred in history, what's the order to read? You start with King John. Well, I would always say start with Cymbeline and Macbeth, but then you get to King John, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, Richard III, and then go from there. Next week we're doing Richard III, who's got the best reputation of them all, and then we'll finish with Henry VIII at the end, but today is Henry VI. So, for the benefit of Dr. Arn and me, especially, what's the overview, the turbocharged overview of Henry VI, parts one through three? <laughs> well, you know, this, there's a lot to say here, and I won't get into the weeds, as they say. I would mention that if, if folks are interested, they should definitely check out The Hollow Crown Season 2. Uh, the first two episodes deal with the Henry VI plays in two parts, and they really show you how, how powerful this early Shakespeare is. The thrilling emergence of a, of a great artist. Um, well, the Hollow Crown. I'm not familiar with it, Dean. Ooh. Oh, it's a, it's a, a British film. There's they did the second tetralogy, Richard II, Henry IV, and Henry V, and they also did this earlier tetralogy, and it's great. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Richard III. It's uh, it's great stuff. So, so Doctor On, you said, ooh, do you well, do you require this of the Hillsdale undergraduates and your Septi- almost uh, septuagenarian buddy has not no, seen it. No, they can it. all read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, those productions, uh, the BBC, and they're shown on Netflix here, they're just uh, a tremendous achievement. They're the best 
series of Shakespeare films I've ever seen. How many hours total are we talking about? Uh, that's probably... Six uh, hours each, maybe. So about yeah, 12 hours of The Hollow Crown. That's a heck of an endorsement. I don't think Dr. Arn has ever endorsed a television series on, in the course of 10 years of this. Have you? Oh, no, I can't remember. But I, I, I tell you, it's just... Just start at the first one, right? It starts with these with these uh, Shakespeare's history plays and just watch them through. They're just awesome actors and they're faithful. They don't change them much and, uh, you know, uh, they don't, pe people are not dressed up in modern garb and stuff like that. So it's, it's just uh, a bunch of really great actors of this generation and they're still young but they're at their peak, too. So. You know, Cumberbatch just got nominated for the best Oscar. This will date this episode for Power of the Dog, which is a very powerful individual performance, but not a very good movie. Here he gets to give a good individual performance, I assume, Dean Smith, in a one of the greatest plays ever. Oh, yeah, he's a fabulous Richard III. I oh, that's really interesting. Huh. No. I just didn't know it. So back to Henry VI. What are we going to okay. find out about him? Okay, so just, just super super briefly, you know, he is uh, young when the play opens. He's kind of living under a Lord Protector, Gloucester. He's mild. He's pious. Uh, he's not really fit for rule. Uh, his father's French victories all fall apart um, quickly at the beginning of the play. The Wars of the Roses begins, and then um, he's going to eventually lose his crown after a bunch of civil chaos and wars. And then Richard... Um, and his family will, will take over. It's hard to really summarize it. There's just a ton of blood and bodies in these plays. Um, multiple claims to the crown, strong personalities. The crown is going to pass around a bit. But when all is said and done, the Yorkists will end up with it, Edward IV. And then his brother, Richard III, will become the tyrant in the final play. So that's where we're going. I want to ask Dr. Arn, as we about to jump off of the triumph of Henry V into the cesspool of the next many kings... What's the lesson that Henry V leaves us with that we ought to believe? Because obviously all glory is fleeting. Well, it's uh, so it might be useful if we think about the 500-year drama that's playing out here. So in 1066, a French nobleman conquers England. Uh, and all of a sudden, England sort of belongs to France. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a the world is divided into into dukedoms and baronetcies and stuff forts and 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 leading lords and their retainers and their armies well 350 years later uh they start bifurcating these two places they first of all because they become more united right it's things are changing things are getting richer communication is better and so now uh, England wants to control France, and France wants to control England. But because these two places don't really live together, they never become the same thing. And, and so, you know, Winston Churchill, who loved the glory of the English people, thought that this whole... Now, now the war that started between France and England is called the Hundred Years' War, because that's how long it lasted. And there was a very large body count. And... and the decisive victory in it is uh, is Henry V at Agincourt, 
and the decisive defeat in it is under Henry VI, uh, who loses the whole thing, right? And and they never get it back. They they hold Calais off and on during time. So anyway, the point is, we're watching the birth of modern England and modern Europe, and now now Shakespeare, who's you know the greatest of the geniuses, he shows what that was like for the people in it. And we are also laying down. I want people to realize we're taping these episodes about Henry VI, Richard III, and Henry VIII when the first week of Queen Elizabeth's 70th year on the throne. So, Stephen Smith, it wasn't always this way in England, was it? (laughs) Boy, it's tough for there to be any kind of orderly uh, transition or or peace. You know, the, the plays end with these routine, you know, here's peace in our times, or it'll be joyful from this point on, you know, um, some kind of resolution that quickly uh, comes to, to mush in the plays. And, and really, I think one of the difficulties that Shakespeare is bringing up is the transition of power. I mean, Henry V dies, and the crown goes to the infant son. Um, we've seen versions of this before, and I think that 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 lack of a of a government where there's a peaceful transition. But but really- my point, and maybe Dr. Arne will agree or disagree with me on this, is that we got one minute. Although this is a bloody and turbulent birth, eventually the English get to constitutional monarchy and the peaceful transition of power. Isn't that I mean, all of this stuff is prequel to where we are today. Yeah, add add to this, uh France is much bigger than England. England gained you know, 300-year predominance in Europe by giving up France and becoming a sea power. Huh. Huh, you're right. They, they didn't want Calais anymore. They just wanted the channel. When we come back, uh, Henry VI's marriage to Margaret. And by the way, Margaret is a wonderful name for anyone out there because at least you'll always be reading about her in Shakespeare. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with Dean Stephen Smith. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, the latter dean of the English department, the former together on the Hillsdale Dialogue. I'm Hugh Hewitt. If and when news happens anywhere, you'll hear it here first. When Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The Henry VI plays, parts one through three. Henry marries Margaret. Now, Margaret is the name of my mother-in-law, and the Marguerite was my mother, so we got to go carefully here, uh, Stephen Smith. Uh, what say you about Margaret's generally, based upon the Margaret in this play? <laughs> They're very powerful figures, and uh, they command respect. Uh, <laughs> but she, she is married to uh, Henry VI, and it's uh, not, not exactly a match made in heaven. You know, Margaret is, she's powerful, she's a hard charger, she's a real fighter, uh, she's fierce, she loves her own, she loves honor, and when that's wronged, uh, she also loves revenge. She's given some of the most powerful, you know, curses in the play. What does that mean? 
I saw that in your notes. I said, what do you well, mean powerful when curses? When she's wronged um, in that vehement, uh, she will, will curse her enemies um, or later Richard with just, you know, just incredible zest and, and power. Um, she's a very strong figure, and she is married to Henry VI, who is not a strong figure, and um, at one key point in the Henry VI plays, um, her husband will accept a kind of bad deal to all the political strife, which is he can stand the throne, but then the crown passes to the Yorkists after his death. Um, and she's infuriated because that means her son is disinherited, and um, and she's just you know, enraged by this. So, Larry, why do we care whether Lancaster or York wins? What are they fighting over for our, all the War of the Roses, which are as impenetrable today as when I first began to read about them in Churchill 40 years ago? Well, we're for Lancaster because that's where my wife is. Okay, of course. Okay, we're... And, uh, and she has some relation to some of the leading people in this. Uh, I'm married above myself. Yeah, it's uh, so. First of all, it's very interesting that the the last ter- territory that England is contesting for in France is in the lower half of the country, and the most powerful forces from England are in the upper half of the country, and that's because they border the Scots, and they have to the the lords up there who are chiefly Lork, uh, York, and Lancaster and Northumberland. They are very powerful players because they got big armies, and they have to have them to hold their land. Because the damn Scots will come and take their cattle. Which, you know, happens in these plays repeatedly. Uh, when you, when you uh, Margaret and Richard, when they get deposed at one point, they run off to Scotland to get, get himself another army. And, uh, and so, that, and see, that means that you're seeing France that is riven from within, and you're seeing an England that is riven from within. And so those two civil wars, or near civil wars, kind of uh, uh, waltz a dance with the war between England and, and France and, and affect it decisively. So, uh, Stephen, this is a moment where, you, you know, Margaret goes really angry with Henry when he gives away her son's crown. Does that tell us something about moms and husband, uh, moms and children, and wives and husbands? Well, she tells us that she really loves her own. I mean, she says something to the effect of, "I would have put a head on a pike before I made this deal." You know, she's fierce, and um, she says her husband prefers life to honor. He doesn't really love his own. He has no spark of honor. He's too cold, and so she's just fierce when it comes to love of her own. But he's a pious man, right? We're, we're to believe he is a good, God-fearing Christian man on the throne. Yes, but he's just not learned how to love his own, is what comes out of the play. Well, what do you mean by that? He, he doesn't want to really rule, exercise his actual duties. Um, he prefers contemplation and prayer um, and piety to his own role in life. Larry, should he have been a priest? I mean, should you take the crown when you inherit it and it's not made for you? Or should you abdicate? Well, it, it, uh, and see, that abdication makes an, inter- an incredible number of complications, right? So one of the most uh, ruthless people through these plays, one of the most ruthless people in British history, is the man who became Richard III. 
Oh, I can't wait for next week because that's and and he never he never you know he danced around. It took him forever to get rid of Henry the Sixth because Henry VI was the legitimate heir. When we come back, how do they get rid of Henry the Sixth? What is he doing when he's praying? Where's God? We'll come back to Stephen Smith, Larry on the Hillsdale Dialogue rolls along all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway this week with the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn, and Dean Stephen Smith. We're continuing in our series about the Shakespearean history plays. We haven't decided yet whether they had Hamlet, Macbeth, and King Lear in, but Stephen Smith keeps shoving them into my outline and confusing me. So why are they in the outline, Stephen Smith? <laughs> well, I mean, I think they are his, his later great treatment of, of the leadership and rule. They're tragic, of course, but they uh, grow out of these history plays and the same set of preoccupations. You know, in the case of Henry VI, he has that piety, right? But he is just incompetent as, as a leader. We saw this before with Richard II um, as well. It seems that with Henry VI, what he really lacks is, you know, those natural virtues um, that he needs to rule himself and others. Do you know, though, when, when I read your outline, I was struck, and I hope I'm not misremembering this, that Edward the Confessor was a weak king, and Alfred the Great was a great king, and they were both pious kings. So I'm not sure that piety actually plays into effectiveness as a monarch, does it? Well, I think that's the question. Is They seem to be in a strife with each other in these plays. You know, there's, there's the virtues on the one hand, there's holiness on the other... And they're often not knit together in one person consistently. It seems to just be uh, not integrated, for lack of a better expression. And and that's a big, I think, problem that Shakespeare is exploring. Um, is there really no place for, for piety in politics? They're not yet head of their church, correct? We are, we are before the Reformation, so these rulers right. are not... Um, the, the head of the uh, Church of England. They're just kings. No, uh, they're, they're kings. You know, and, and to stick with Henry VI, I mean, he, he loves love, he loves friendship, he loves peace. He's famous for mildness, peace, and prayer. But he's critiqued as not having a kind of fit mind for rule. Um, and it's always, he's virtuous, he's mild, but, you know, he speaks of conscience and hope, but. And he is critiqued very strongly for a lack of uh, fortitude at one point, lack of prudence. Um, it just seems to be the lack of those, those natural virtues that a leader really needs to rule himself and others well. So, Dr. Arne, what, what's the lesson that Shakespeare's taught? If you've got to choose between a pious ruler and a ruthless ruler, which one should you take? Well, uh, both are miserable. Uh, and so what you want is both, in a way. Uh, the virtue of practical judgment is extremely good at sorting out all this stuff that's even difficult for us to follow in these plays. You know, these imagine, these people are surrounded by kinsmen who 
might kill them, right? And so they, they're all maneuvering through that all the time. And that means they need to be perceptive and even ruthless. On the other hand, uh, practical wisdom is a form of wisdom. That means you have to have your eye on eternal things. And so it's rare for somebody to be able to do both of those things well, and that's what makes a good ruler. And others are deficient. Double character is what you talked to me about, uh, Dean Smith. What do you mean by a double character? Well, I mean that Shakespeare likes to show us um, these leading figures who, you know, on their lips, you know, they still speak of like integrity or religion or truth or virtue. Um, but on the level of their deeds and actions, they seem to have anything but like a single mind or, or integrity. And so he's just showing a, a problem. Like Again, these two things aren't integrated well in the leadership. Is there any admirable character in Henry VI at all? Fully formed in the round, knowing everything we know about them. Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah, that is a good question. I, I'd say no, and I, and I think that out of that vacuum, tyranny rises. Oh, yeah. interesting. Oh, Joan of Arc, yeah. <laughs> oh, did. Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're, uh, uh, Shakespeare presents her as impractical in some ways, and she was. But just remember, she is one of the most inspiring characters in history. I want people to understand what Churchill wrote in History of the English Speakable. If, if she hadn't existed, we would have had to invent her. She's real. She's the real person, right? There's no doubt. And, you know, uh, Mark Twain uh, wrote, uh, you know, a novel about Joan of Arc. And at the end of the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, at the beginning of it, he says that he intended to write a serious novel. And what happens in that novel, which is a comedy, is the destruction of the entire English nobility. But he said the next one, <laughs> you know, and the next one is Joan of Arc. And that's a very serious thing. And it's just, you know, you, you, you sit down and you start reading that and you think you're going to read Mark Twain. And this is some other guy. And it's So, so I'm, I'm curious, when Henry VI considers that Joan of Arc is obviously sent by God, does he pause... Stephen Smith. No, I mean on that on that Twain point, you know, he he if I'm remembering correctly, he considered that his best book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What? What? Yes. Yeah. He considered I, that. that I've never read it. I have I have no idea. And so so read, read the preface to Connecticut Yankee and then the Connecticut Yankee, which is you know it 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 ends by the way in the electrocution of all of the English nobility, and then the book's over. Right? It's a dream. But and 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 he introduces that book by saying he's going to write a serious book, and and then that's the book about Joan. And but she, you know she herself, I mean, if you just read her story, it's incredible. She was first of all very holy, and so the English Achilles, which comes out of this period of time when everybody's at war all the time, is is Talbot, you know, a nobleman, right? And he was just a tremendous battler. And he, all, all of the all of the big big battles that were won against the French that were not won by Henry V were won by Talbot. I mean, after Henry V. But, but when does Joan appear? With whom does she contend as a general? At the peak of Talbot's time, right? And then she's just she's the maid, right? She's just a girl from Orleans, and she she's 
she just has a vision, and then it's a little bit like the story of Clive, who, without yes. any training, conquered India. All of it, accidentally. But, That's right. But, you know, but, but, uh, but she just goes on the battlefield, and she just wins every time. I've I've read I've watched every movie ever made about Joan Arc because she's so interesting. I'm just curious if Shakespeare renders a judgment on her. Stephen Smith does he? Well, he does uh, suggest that she's um, at one point, you know, influenced by by bad spirits. Actually, aha. Um, so there's she's actually I've struggled with this. Frankly, she's she's presented kind of doubly in the play. Um, everything that Dr. Arne just said is there at moments with extremely strong lines. And then there's also this other view of her as a kind of witch or, you know, yeah. a charlatan. So Shakespeare and, never settles the question? He never declares? He often does this, doesn't he, where he presents two views of the same person. And remember, yeah. she was burned by the English as right. a witch. But Churchill loved her. I mean, oh, Churchill. Well, everybody does. I mean, everybody who knows about her loves her. I mean, you just, you just, as we say in the South, she's the man. So is Shakespeare <laughs> telling us what he really believes, or is he telling us what's necessary to present to Elizabeth the first? Well, that's probably a part of it, right? But it's complicated, see, because you know, I, I, it's unimaginable to me that this very, uh, you know, the most artful of all the poets doesn't regard his country highly. He spent a lot of time on it. But his country, the, the, the strain in, you know, and we're talking about how long? We're talking about, you know, 400 years, 500 years, uh, from the Norman Conquest until the end of the reign of Richard VI, sorry, Henry VI. England is a, a major player in continental affairs, which means world affairs back then, because it owns a bunch of France, and often, for a short time, all of it. And so that's a, a glory. Now, Shakespeare's life is lived almost entirely under the reign of Elizabeth. And that's the greatest glory, except for the 20th century and Winston Churchill. And, and, uh, and Elizabeth, powerful, stable, shrewd, she never tries to take back France, right? And that that seals the deal. And so that's all over in the world of Shakespeare. But it's remembered as glorious, too. So the, of all the kings we've covered thus far, monarchs and dukes, etc., the person we admire the most is Henry V because of courage. Henry VI, is he the person we admire the least, Stephen Smith? Um, I, I'd say, actually, I'd probably put Richard II. Um above him, below him, whatever I ways to put it. Um, but Henry the Sixth, you know, he he's the he he loves what he loves, which is piety and heaven and prayer. But I really think he wasn't well educated, formed or prepared for rule. I think that comes out of the plays as well. So he's we don't one, want pious Bob we had been there, right? If if, if Henry oh, the interesting. Had, oh, think, interesting. think about him for a minute for his upbringing. First of all, Henry VI is an example of the remarkable stability, even in all this turmoil, that can come from being an uncontested heir. But however, because he becomes king when he's a baby, a kid, he is in the middle of all that stuff going on, and he's not deciding anything or taking part. Larry, quick question before we go to the end, Richard. 
of all the times in English history that you've studied, has the crown ever been on more secure ground than in the last 20 years when you know you might get a little Charles, then you're going to get William, then you're going to get George? I well, mean, one, you know, one, you know, I've 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 become a monarchist in the in the sense of Churchill reign, but not rule, mostly through the influence of my wife, who knows everything about Elizabeth II and loves her and is right to. I've I've divined, but what what will happen in the incredible turmoil that's going on in the world, including in England? What will happen if 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 Charles is no good at it? If the generation for him turned out to be a bunch of radicals whose announced principles undercut the whole idea of constitutional monarchy. Well, you know, I'm, I, we're going to go to break. I'm going to say that it's like getting a bad pope. You just grit your teeth and go through it. You hope he's not that. But if you get a bad pope, you just grit your teeth and go through it. And the crown is stable, right? Well, there was a lot of tooth gritting in this place that we're reading. Yes, there is. There's a lot of grind. We're going to come back and talk about the guy who was grinding with a menace, Richard III. Don't go anywhere, America. We continue with the Hilltale Dialogue after this. The, the Hilltale Dialogue rolling along on the Hugh Hewitt Show. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. flying across the country on one of those rare occasions when I was on a private jet. I was with John Voigt, who is a hell of an Elizabethan actor. People do not know that. And it was three o'clock in the morning and he launched into Richard III and had 10 of us, including Prager, who never shuts up, spellbound. And so Richard III makes his debut in this Henry VI play. What are we learning about him, Stephen the Smith? Well, in, at the end of of the Henry VI plays, you know, Henry Tudor is introduced for the first time. He's going to become Henry VII and will defeat Richard, but also Richard is introduced. And um, his brother, Edward IV, kind of wins the wars, gets the crown. Um, but then Richard immediately um, kind of begins to reveal himself. Um, he is uh, ambitious. He's willing to do anything. He's extremely quick in action. And he will, at the end of uh, the play, be the one who kills Henry VI. Oh, spoiler alert. I wasn't going to tell people that, but okay, oh. we've done it. Out, 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 out spot. There's a, pretty good, there's a pretty good chance that Richard is the one who kills somebody. In the yeah. <laughs> uh, any, anyway, it yeah. seems so. <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, what's really remarkable about the end is, um, is his re kind of big, his revelation that he's, he's in it for himself alone. And he wants the crown for himself. So, yes, his brother is the king. Um, his side won. But, you know, Shakespeare uh, indicates that there's, there's another play coming in which Richard's going to get that crown for himself. So he, he kills himself. I mean, not, I mean, he doesn't commit suicide. He actually commits murder. What does that tell you about someone? It tells you that you have, I think in this case, you have a tyrant on your hands. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's willing to kill and... And he even uh, explains uh, himself very clearly beforehand. You know, he says, Earth affords me no joy. I make it my heaven to dream upon the crown. I can smile and murder while I smile. Oh. I, I, can, I can frame my face to all occasions. Can someone who can do all this really not get a crown for himself? He's a very zesty character. You know, you can tell why actors would love to play this part. 
Um, who was your favorite, Richard the Third? Well, right now, I mean, I just watched the Benedict Cumberbatch. I thought he was fabulous. But I also like uh, Ian McKellen. I thought you might say, I saw McKellen as Lear, and I, I can imagine being a villain comes to him very well. Um, <laughs> and, and is there anything, anything in this play admirable about Richard III? Does he see that the country's got to move forward, so he has to strike? Uh, I think it's, it's what's admirable about, about him is his ability to, to play parts, of his wit, his uh, expeditious dispatch of business. Like, he just has so much energy, and it's impressive. You, you almost wonder, gosh, you know, if, if someone on the other side could, could rule at least with comparable energy to this guy, <laughs> comparable wit, we'd have a real powerful leader on our hands. But, of course, he's devoted to murder and to himself alone. Now, I've been reading about the Medici, and they are ruthless, ruthless, ruthless people. And as a result, Florence is strong. If I uh, remember that this is a, a, a caricature, uh, see, the, uh, Steve Smith, this is one of his best themes, so I'll yield to him in a minute. But poetry can, sh- can show things in sharper relief than they appear in life, at least to mortal men. And so, like, you know, I know a little bit, quite a bit, about the mental weather of Adolf Hitler. And he thought he was a good guy. Yep. And, uh, and he was not. For the record, for the benefit of the yeah, lefties yeah. listening, no, and, he was and, not. And the point is, when it, uh, a, a truer picture of him was that he was so eaten up with himself that anybody who was formidable to him needed to be killed. And if he was in a conversation, like Neville Chamberlain, for example, who treated him as an equal, it made him hate. So he was a very evil man. But I don't think he was aware of that. Uh, you know, and that's why you need all these grand pretensions that, uh, you know, I'm the, what, the result of evolution, the greatest thing ever, right? Richard probably had stuff like that going on in his mind. And on the other hand, just remember, he, all of these guys, right, they can't trust anybody. And that goes on until, in the War of the Roses, all of the heirs potential heirs from the houses of Lancashire and York are killed. Are dead. All of them. So what's the takeaway? We're about to go to Richard III next week. Stephen Smith, what is the takeaway? What's the audience filing out of the globe thinking? England's got trouble on the horizon. (laughs) Richard Richard says, you know, let hell make crooked my mind. I have no brother. I'm like no brother. There's no love in me. I am myself alone. And I'm going to get that crown. Uh-oh. Uh, you know, the tyrant is rising. And the tyrant is that. rising, and there's a sequel coming. And when we come back next week, we're going to talk about that sequel. Richard III, you've heard of I'm not the Richard III Rehab Society, but if anyone can do it, Stephen Smith will. Do not miss next week's Hillsdale Dialogue. I, he's actually not going to do that. I've read his outline. But don't miss it anyway. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Thank you, Dean Stephen Smith. From the English Department, thank you. Anyone who wants to find out more about Hillsdale, hillsdale.edu, including the application you ought to be filing for yourself to go up north. Go to Michigan for four years. You can survive it and then get out and learn something and then go save the country. I'll be right back, America, on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.
when you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.